can't hear your sound right now. Just looking at your confused face, mouth agape. If you pull out the headphones, will that work for now anyway? Maybe if I do this now. Because I did this before and it worked. Are you back in your earphones? Uh, I can't hear you again. I have a backup pair of headphones. Maybe this will do it. And... I can hear you now. Okay, well, it's not running through my headphone now, though. <laughs> okay, so these are dead, probably. Oh, wait. Mm. Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah, <gasps> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, if these stay exactly where they are, it should work. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to read your, your t-shirt. So Steven vs. the Universe. So is that like a Steven Universe cross, what's his name? The, uh, that movie based on the comic book? Yeah, I just Scott saw Scott Pilgrim. It. Exactly, Scott Pilgrim. Uh, it was the last movie I saw before we went into quarantine. Oh, the Steven Universe movie? Or? Mm. Uh, Scott Pilgrim. There was a Alamo special showing of it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Seems fun. Any uh, big news in your life? Uh, my pea plants are two feet high, which is uh, pretty awesome. They're really yeah. uh, healthy vines, and I have been hand-killing aphids for the last hour. So, uh, Wow. Yeah. Are they, are they growing any peas yet? No, not yet. Um, I don't know when they do that. I've heard they do that when they get to six feet tall. So now I need to... Uh, figure out how I make another lattice work because I only have about two and a half feet of lattice work. So I need to do that probably hmm. tomorrow. Um, so Cassie is doing her PhD dissertation defense on Tuesday. Oh my gosh, that's, that's so exciting. exciting. Yeah. And uh, it's, I think it's like mainly symbolic. So I think her committee has like looked over her dissertation already and stuff like that. So I think it's kind of it's oh, okay. more just presenting it to the world than this like high stakes thing. So, but hopefully that goes well and she feels good about it and yeah. And then- uh, Right, absolutely. I'm, I'm like sort of furloughed, so I have to take a week of unpaid vacation this quarter. Oh. And uh, I'm gonna take a week off after her thing so we can kind of have a vacation. Um, so the dissertation thing, just a quick question. So she's done her dissertation and this is just where a board gets to ask her questions about it, right? Yeah, kind of. They're, they're, I guess there's like two parts. So the way, I guess this is often done, at least in like US sciences now, is so she's done the experiments, written the dissertation, sent that to her board. She does a presentation and that presentation is open to the public. So a bunch of people in this case, instead of being in person, will be on Zoom, will watch it. Then she'll go off into like a private chat with her committee and they'll kind of like grill her and ask her questions. And then assuming that she does well in that part, then they'll be like, congratulations, here's your like PhD. But I think, I think these days it's like very rare for people to like fail that or to be like asked to like redo it or something like that at that stage. Usually it's kind of like you wouldn't be able to get to that stage if, if you weren't ready okay so thank you yeah. cool fascinating yeah i don't know much about that world okay yeah it's a weird world yeah uh yeah. watch the first episode of star girl uh it's probably gonna be terrible so uh that's a let <laughs> that's okay that doesn't matter because mm, that's one of your favorite characters right yeah when you, when you 
won the Hero Clicks World Championship. Oh, yeah. You got to create your own piece, right? And didn't you choose Stargirl? Yeah, that was a cool one. Oh, uh, that Mr. Wiener thing. I'm going to try to send him uh, one of those uh, Stargirl pieces. Of yeah. <laughs> um, I, I was going to say one thing, just going back to, um, to my girlfriend, Cassie. Mm-hmm. So she studied clinical psychology. Um, and we did watch the first couple episodes of Neon Genesis Evangelion. So we could have her on as a, a guest potentially and have her give her psychological assessment of Shinji. That would be so cool. Uh, yeah, I'm down for it. So let her know if she's interested, she can be our first guest or if there's an episode that you, like, that's the thing. I'm not like watching ahead. I'm just watching the one that we're going to watch today over and over. Yeah. Um, so I don't remember if there are any good episodes coming up that have like a base clinical psychology uh, uh you know yeah you haven't met cassie yet right uh, i don't think so uh no not yet yeah so that'd be kind of fun too you want to intro this episode okay so we're about to watch uh episode three uh of neon genesis the netflix title is the silent phone and the episode title uh from imdb is a transfer uh, so, last time on Neon Genesis Evansplosion, Shinji got in the robot and was immediately terrible at piloting it. Sakael, the third angel, gives Ava 01 the Kurt Cobain treatment, then Shinji wakes up in a hospital with seemingly no injuries. Shinji stares at his forearm for way too long and even sees Rei in the hallway. Misato learns that Genda will not be housing Shinji and goes ballistic, taking this micro-housing crisis onto her own shoulders. Shinji meets our lord and savior Pen Pen at Misato's barely furnished apartment. After a microwave dinner, Masato tricks Shinji into agreeing to most of the house chores. Before falling asleep, Shinji unpacks the battle with Sakael, and we learned that after Ava 01's critical injury, it pulled in Odin and went all berserk mode. Sakael did its best to survive a real Avon slot, but must resort to self-destruction in order to preserve its dignity. Okay, and if you want to count it down. Sure, uh, let me find which tab it's in. All right. Um... You got your your arrow over that play button. Correct. You gonna do your? Uh, you gonna sing along? Yeah, I'll do it or something. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> All right, three, two, one, go. do do this all the time now uh whenever my mind wanders i just do this song in my head it's becoming a thing Sad show, sad end. Great episode. Okay, so that was episode three, uh, A Transfer, or The Silent Phone. Uh, and it was pretty awesome. Uh, it started with Shinji just straight back in the Ava 01 in a proper plug suit this time and doing like virtual reality training, right? Yeah, yeah. It started with this weird thing of like his face kind of going through rainbow hues. It's like this very trippy first visual. Oh, yeah. 
And that's like the 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 monitors initializing, right? It kind of does a similar thing the first time he gets in. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I feel like we kind of saw it from this other perspective before of like, you know, the thing filled up with water and then we maybe saw what he was seeing kind of first person. Oh, right, and then yeah. The third person of like, I guess the same visuals casting over his face or something like that. Yeah, and it's, so there's this weird thing, like he's in a virtual reality thing, right? But the Ava is physically in this giant virtual reality room, mm -hmm. right? So they have to have this additional gigantic room, a way to transport the Ava to this gigantic room. Like the whole virtual reality thing is bizarre just because of the logistics of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of like almost, instead of being in a car simulator, he's like driving a real car on a conveyor belt or something like that, right? Um, yes, exactly. But, but it kind of makes sense because you want him to be in the, the real thing because that's like the struggle as we saw earlier when he, when he fell, is just like being able to physically control this thing. Right, that's true. And like, obviously, you know, there, we can't say like, oh, the controls work this way because there has to be some fuzzy controls, like in any mech anime or something like that, because controls for a thing like that don't exist. Like, how would you control the feet too? Do you have pedals? Do you have whatever? Um, yeah, I, I get the impression that it's more like a brain computer interface, right? And that's why this kind of like neural synchrony thing is so important is that, you know, somehow it's picking up on his brain signals and then like communicating it to some sort of like spinal cord sort of thing for this uh, creature. Right. So like the when he pulls the trigger on his little joystick controller thing, right, is like gun handle controller. Uh, is that just a prop? Is it just a placebo? Mm -hmm. Does it do anything? Or are those necessary to interact with the other equipment, maybe? I don't know yet. So, so yeah, that's kind of interesting. So they do have these brain-computer interfaces where they, um, they train monkeys to like move a robot arm or something like that. And often what they do is first they have this joystick that's kind of like plugged in, and they actually use the joystick to move the arm. But what they're doing is they read the kind of brain signals that it's sending to move the joystick. And then eventually they can unplug the joystick and then the monkey will continue to like move the joystick, but it's like not actually reading any signals from the joystick, right? It's just reading the brain signals directly. Mm -hmm. And then eventually the monkey realizes, hey, I don't even need to move the joystick. And then it can just sit there and do it like purely with its brain um, without moving its body. That is wild. But it would be like this step-by-step -step process, right? Where you have a placebo essentially, or, or one of those things. And oh, wow, okay, that's really wild. And that's partly because like we need we need the monkey doing something so then we can train how to interpret it, its brain signals. So right. maybe, maybe it's important for the monkey too to have some kind of transitional thing into doing it or that, that makes it quicker at, at figuring out that its mind is controlling this stuff. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. I don't know, it would be cool if that happens in the series too, right? Like that if maybe early on he's doing more stuff with the controls and then later on, you know, he's just like doing it, you know, he's just sitting there and moving it. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. We'll keep a lookout for that. Hmm? Do, you, do you know, like, so when he squeezes the trigger or whatever, do we see the hand of the mech squeeze the trigger? I don't know. I'll see if I can look for that real quick. Because um, there's one other thing that I wanted to look at. But uh, just because another thought is maybe like, you know, he's moving the body with his 
brain, but then like the trigger just directly sends the signal to the weapon or something like that. Right. Yeah. When you think about mechs, I'm like, why would you put a trigger in? Because <laughs> some, some of the weapons, it's just connected to his forearm, right? It's not even really holding a gun. Yes. Anyway, I can't remember the combat scene that well. So I guess, um, you know, they have this whole conversation about him and he, he's just kind of like very passively following these orders and repeating stuff over and over again. And one of them says, you know, he does whatever he's told. That's how he makes his life easier. So what, what do you make of that line? Oh, I just think Ritsuko is uh, like solidifying. She doesn't really, or not that she doesn't like Shinji, but she, I think she's on kind of on Gendo's side. Hmm. Like she sees Shinji as a tool. And so she, like, yes, she has this insight. She's like, this is what he does. He, or this is what people like him do. Uh, they follow orders because they it makes their life easier. They don't have to make any decisions. Other people tell them what to do. Hmm. And it's the idea that that's like why they want him to be the pilot because he's someone who just follows orders. I think that maybe that's part of it or maybe that's a red herring. I think he, they want him to be the pilot just because he's Gendo's son because it is this, for whatever reason, he's a genetic match for this Ava. And... Uh, yeah, I guess there are spoilers reasons why he was probably chosen that we'll find out about. Yeah, I, I thought it was kind of interesting. It's, it's almost like, um, I, I think there is this idea, you know, maybe everywhere in the world, but then especially in Japan, that like kids are trained to just like follow orders and like not really to like think for themselves. Like I know people maybe talk about that as like a problem in the Japanese educational system. It's like, Oh, yeah. Mm. So, so in comparing U.S. and Japanese educational system, it's like in Japan, you're always like just like answering questions and listening. And maybe in the U.S. educational system, there's more stuff like write an essay about like your opinion on this thing that Japanese people aren't really like asked to kind of like do stuff like that as much. Hmm. But then I thought that part about like that's how he makes his life easier. It's almost a little sympathetic that that maybe that's like a way of like coping with this thing that's like like when everything is out of your control, like you just like go with the flow kind of. Right, absolutely. Like if you don't, I mean, we live in this physical universe, right? And by like physical laws, like everything has a determined course that it's going to take. And so, yeah, if like you, if you think like that, then... Uh, it's just, it's in keeping with that thought pattern to think that, yeah, if I don't have control over uh, anything, then that's fine. I'll just do what I'm told. Like, it's just one less level of control. Yeah. It's all the same to him at that point. And I guess in the, like, the first episode, he does refuse to, he doesn't do what he's told, right? He, like, fights back at first, but now he's kind of, like, given up and given in. And, yeah, he's talking in this very kind of, like, dejected monotone voice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he is pretty low at the beginning of this episode. Um, yeah, he's very, I don't know if he's brain dead or, or if that was supposed to be overnight. And it's like a direct, I assume there was time between his training sequence and uh, the next morning that we get to where uh, uh, Misato uh, is, wants to stay asleep because her shift just got done. Well, were they like training overnight and Misato gets to sleep, but Shinji now has to go to school? 
Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure either. Yeah, I, I did wonder that if it's like almost like all she has to do is like the work stuff and then he has to go to school on top of it kind of or something like that. Well, I, so because it's more tragic, I'm going to believe that they go straight from training. They get home, she goes to sleep and he's like, hey, it's morning. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah you go to school. Regardless, uh, he, she gave him a home, which is cool. But uh, she still had, like you said, she still has her own problems that yeah. she has to deal with. Um, so she's not really looking out for him the way you would want. Yeah. And, and so I guess two weeks now have passed since the last battle. We learned that because Suzuhara has been like out of school for two weeks or something. So that means that it's two weeks since, uh, oh, the last uh, angel attack. Okay. So they're, uh, uh, as we thought they might, but they're increasing in uh, frequency because uh, it took 15 years, right? And Im- almost immediately after the first one came, uh, two weeks after is like nothing, right? Yeah. So Ida um, is a real nerdy guy. He's like uh, the otaku of the class. Uh, he's into like model UN uh, uh, carrier jets and uh, he has a camcorder, which we assume is not something everyone has because in this future, not everyone just has a camera on their phone. And then we also meet uh, Suzuhara, and he's kind of the class, I don't know if he's like the class bully. I mean, he's like tall and seems kind of strong, but... He looks like a jock. Oh yeah, okay, so he's kind of a jock. Uh, he's the only person who doesn't have to wear the school uniform, apparently. Uh, I don't know if he has it on under his tracksuit. Maybe jocks get to just wear tracksuits to class. Yeah, maybe that's like a, you can wear your like team uniform as like your uniform or something. I don't know. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Uh, and he just, he hasn't been in school for two weeks and that's, he didn't get hurt. His sister got hurt in the last uh, angel attack. Yeah. And, and something interesting too about like, it, it is really good at like creating the universe without using exposition, right? So they kind of like tell us, uh, like time has passed because he's been gone. And then there's this thing about like, oh, you know, maybe maybe he was hurt in the, like during the battle. And they're like, but there were like no casualties reported. Oh, that's smart. You know, and then we learn like, okay, like the government is like lying to people. But then even these school children, you know, like Ida knows better than to like trust the government accounts just using his common sense. He's like, did you see that like huge crater and like all these people that like were brought in to like help, I don't know, you know, like I guess dig people out of rubble or something like that. Yeah. And uh, who thought there were no casualties? Was that the, she's like the class rep? Yeah, I think something like that. Yeah. Okay. So, so like, and that would be someone who's kind of, who buys into the classroom setting, into the hierarchy, right? Yeah. I, I wonder if there's a, a, like, otaku conspiracy theory. I wonder if those things are related at all in Japan. You know, I think of at least conspiracy theories as being this, like, sort of male nerdy thing, at least in the U.S. Oh, stereotypically, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, probably, like, a 10 to 1. I don't know. <laughs> what are conspiracy theories in other cultures? I've never heard, like, you know, like... Like, is there, like, some super British conspiracy theory, you know? Oh, uh, yeah, there's, uh, like, there are similar, MI5 has similar stuff to it in Britain that the CIA has to it in America. So, like, you know the CIA has done really shady stuff, but we can't confirm that they are housing aliens or anything like that. 
So MI5 has a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or, or, you know, like, what's some crazy, like, Japanese conspiracy theory that, like, I don't know. I don't know any of them. It's, like, dosing their water or something, or, like, China's doing some crazy shit. I don't know. I know they have much more serious or much more elaborate cults than we do. Uh, They had this cult that uh, got nerve gas it might have been sarin gas yes uh yeah sarin they're like what is it shinrio something yeah and they set off uh oh maybe you told me about this they set off they set it off they made an attack on a japanese subway station Uh, yeah i don't know if we've talked about it yeah i guess it's called om shinrikyo um yeah it was this pretty crazy it was like cult that tried to like infiltrate the government and did this like terrorist attack and um What's his name? Haruki Murakami, the the novelist, he did this interesting book where he interviewed a lot of the people that were, I guess, like hurt, but survived that attack and kind of um, has this like true crime interview book about it. That sounds fascinating. Do you know the title of that book? I think it might be called Underground. Let me see. Just Googling it now. Yeah, I think Underground by Haruki Murakami. All right, we've got uh, okay, anyways. five minutes remaining. Got to. Oh no, really? Yeah. Oh no. Okay. So lightning round. So Suzuhara. Uh, uh, so the classroom finds out that uh, Shinji is the Ava pilot, and Suzuhara now has a reason to uh, deck him in the face, uh, and that moves us right along to outside where he's doing that, beating uh, beating up Shinji while Ada Ida like watches or videotapes maybe. Yeah. They have these little computer things on their desk that remind me of uh, Ender's Game. I don't know which of these came first or if there's a common thing, but I think that also had like like people typing into these little computer terminals and sending messages back and forth in, in the classroom. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And similar themes too, right? Child soldiers. Yeah, I wonder if that was like an inspiration or if that's just kind of like a universal thing of... of for some reason, the children have to fight this new enemy. They're like uniquely suited to it. I mean, I guess it is always children. Like maybe that's a recurring theme in media just because of like, it's not, it's not always necessarily children, children, like 14 year olds and younger, but it is always like the young yeah. that fight the wars. Yeah, it's these crusty old men sending young men off to fight this battle when they're you know, still not fully formed people. Yeah, and not explaining to them what's at stake either. Like, they don't really know. Yeah, so so Suzuhara beats up Shinji. You know, it seems like he's kind of like, I mean, obviously his sister was hurt, but he, you know, he's like, why the fuck did the pilot do that? Because people don't know that the Eva just kind of like took over and was acting on its own when it like went on that, that rampage. Right, absolutely. And I mean, Suzuhara's got to be mad that, like, I'm feeling mad right now that, you know, we're all in uh, uh, under different levels of quarantine and, like, I, people get real angry that they can't do anything. Mm-hmm. And so they take it out on something and here's a good, like, oh my gosh, it's the Ava pilot? Well, it's that guy's fault. Yeah. Uh, and he even, like, before he punches him the second time, he has this look on his face. He's like, I guess I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to punch you again. Yeah, and then Ida brings it up later when they're in the bathroom where it's like, dude, I mean, like, I get you're mad, but, you know, he still has to, like, do this stuff. Like, do you think this is making it any better to, like, beat him up? Uh, I wonder if uh, 
the, there was a teacher in the classroom, right? And he is explaining to them right before uh, uh, Suzuhara beats up Shinji. Uh, he's explaining to the classroom what the second impact is and the the problems that, well, he actually doesn't explain what it is, but he talks about the the famines and the ethnic wars and the uh, thousands of species that were extinct uh, as a result of it. And I wonder if it's similar to any experiences that Anno or uh, any of the other people working on the series had being told about the bombs when they were in uh, high school or secondary school. Um, not having experienced it, but having grown up like, you know, in the shadow of it and having these teachers tell them, you don't really understand what it's like before this. It was a completely different world. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. That that'd be maybe more his personal experience. The, I don't know, the meta narrative is kind of uh, taking shape for me because Anna was born 15 years after the bomb happened. Uh-huh. Um, and so he's born 1960? Yeah, I think that was it. And uh, uh, Shinji is 14 when this all happens. So he's, or 14, you know, kind of 15. And he's born uh, right after, or right before actually the, um, so it's not perfect, but there is that like kind of 15 year gap that's being used. Hmm. Okay, so Ray comes out, not in time to help Shinji not get beat up, but in time to tell him that uh, they are being called up to nerve because there's a, an emergency. And that emergency ends up being an angel attack. Cue the music. Oh, awesome. Got a little segment going here. Uh, so this ends up being the fourth angel, which is, uh, I think it's pronounced Shamshael. And it uh, is a cephalopod looking thing. Uh, so anyways, it, the name means lonely conqueror of God. And it is the angel of the morning, which makes perfect sense because if Sakael was the dawn of the new like round of angels coming at us, the next one would be the angel of the morning, right? Um, and it has two main forms of attack, or one main form of attack, which is two whip-like appendages that are called light whips uh, that kind of burn or puncture on contact. So uh, Chamshel is designed by Yoshito Asari, which is the same designer as Sakael, the last angel. And it has an AT field, like all angels, and it's also capable of full flight with the AT field. Wait, so I thought the AT field were like those force field things. Yes. So it, the AT field is kind of like all of their energy projection is in some way a manifestation of that, of the AT field. Hmm. So like when they use, I think when they use energy weapons when they use uh uh when they fly it is a a manifestation of that at field what do you think of this angel i think he's kind of cool kind of weird looking i mean from certain angles totally looks like a penis uh from other angles it's like when it's towering over when uh the ava is uh on the ground at one point and it like rears up it's really cool looking uh really menacing in a way that when it first shows up you're like oh it looks kind of cute i would not be afraid of that yeah that's what i was wondering about it just like there's something that looks kind of like goopy there's one angle i don't think it's a tongue but it's like it's engine thing uh what's that thing called again oh the s2 yeah core yeah core so, so there's this one shot of it kind of flying to the left and that thing, there's this like red circle, but to me it almost looks like it's a cartoon dog with its like tongue sticking out or something. <laughs> and like, I'm not sure if that's like intentional. Like if you're supposed to be like, this thing is lame. And then it's like, 
yeah, you think this is lame? Like, look at these light whips, bam. I think you're right. And I think that will be an emerging uh, uh, or a continuing um, theme with the angels too. They will be more and more alien. They will be things that we don't, there will be those like subversions of expectations. Like the first one, uh, Sakael, it doesn't really do anything aggressive until the, uh, the military nukes it. Mm. So like that's a subversion. Uh, uh, this, this one is like that. Uh, angels in the future will like not even look organic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I want to say I love the, the music when that battle starts. There's something just feels like sort of like kind of classic movie music. And, and I think that to me, that gives this like a little bit of a, a like timeless feel get the feeling that this is, you know, drawing from a bunch of different influences and is kind of like mashing them up with very like new and modern things. Definitely. The music is kind of one of the, the places that you feel that. Yeah, um, which is a great, I mean, I think that's how all the best art is made. Like trying to be too original just doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me because everything we do is an amalgamation of the things that came before it. So the city goes into lockdown and uh, the, the school, the classroom uh, gets locked down, but uh, Ida convinces Suzuhara to sneak out so they can watch the robot monster fight. And they do, uh, they, they get to a mountainside, they get a really good view of it just as the Ava comes out of its like launching building and uh, it, Jumps around the corner and Shinji empties an entire rifle in uh, one burst into the angel, which does nothing but obscure it because, I mean, that's kind of a rule of anime. I don't know if we've already gone over that, that if you shoot a bunch of little things at a target, it will cause a dust cloud, but it will not do any damage. Or even like a big thing. You always There's always like one attack at the beginning that does absolutely nothing to the thing. Oh, that's true. Like the trope is often like, we used our like biggest, most powerful weapon. Surely it's destroyed. And that kind of happens in episode one with the UN, right? Yeah. And like the dust clears and it's like, what? It's unaffected. Like, you know, that's like a very like Dragon Ball Z, Kamehameha, like, oh my God, it's energy level is even higher than it was before we shot it. Like, I love it. We're going to look out for that. I bet that'll happen every angel attack now that we've noticed it. Um, Uh, So something I think is cool about this combat too is it does another fiction trope, but I think uses it pretty effectively of like, there's this ticking time bomb where it's like, not only is this combat going on, but there's like, they're constantly talking about how much energy does this thing have left? And so that kind of adds a lot of suspense because kind of every second that he's not doing something is kind of like the situation is getting more dire too because they're running out of time. Yeah, yeah you mean like uh, uh, like every bomb always that someone has to defuse always comes down to one second, right? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, or like you know, so it's, I think it's often called the ticking time bomb because that's like a good example of it. It's like oh, there's this bomb that you have a certain amount of time to defuse, but it could be like you know, like the terrorists are getting ready to do this thing. And if they're not stopped, they're going to like destroy whatever, or, you know, there's a bunch of ways you can kind of make the ticking time bomb. Like the serial killer has been killing one person a week. So we have to like catch him before his next victim or something like that. Yeah. And uh, often I feel like the 
actual runtime of something abuses the ticking time bomb. Like mm. it'll show 30 seconds, but then it'll give you a two minute scene and then come back to it and show like 15 seconds. <laughs> um, I think in this show they do the opposite because they have to fill runtime and they want their animation to stretch as far uh, because of their budget as they can. They instead use it to like check back often and actually I think do the actual runtime when they start it. Because, uh, yeah, the, the angel severs his uh, umbilical cord, and he goes, they start counting down to five minutes, right? Yeah. And that did that happen in the first combat, too, that he also got off of the... Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think so. I think, because I think I remember the umbilical cord when Ava does the, the flip, hmm. and I don't know that, I don't think there's any shots yeah. of it being severed. I think this is the first time it gets severed. Man, those light whips are dangerous because they do something to the Ava that hasn't happened before, which is very cool. Hmm. You mean kind of like where it tears through the armor and we see this like hand underneath? Uh, oh yeah. Oh, but it also uh, uh, it also severed the cord. Oh right. Because this cord is like kind of unprotected, but it is at least behind the Ava. So if it's facing you, it's hard to get at the cord. But this whip just like goes around the back of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and severs the whole thing. Something interesting too. So, so the kids are out there videotaping, right? Ida and Suzuhara are visit, videotaping this combat. They end up getting a lot closer than they were expected because Shinji gets kind of pushed back next to them. And then when this light whip is coming down, he reaches up and grabs it. And it's a little bit like, um, you know, when he isn't ready to get in the, the Eva in the episode one, and like that rebel falls down and the hand reaches out and protects oh, yeah. him. That, that is kind of a similar thing happening, but now he's the one grabbing and protecting them from this thing. Um, and then kind of at the end of the combat, when they're running out of time and telling him to retreat, he kind of goes berserker, right? So he goes against commands and he goes and attacks this thing and kills it in a very similar way to the way that the Eva kind of went berserker on its own once he was knocked out in the first episode. Right. Um, Trying to uh, stab into its uh, S2 core. Yeah. So, so I was wondering too, like, like they have all this stuff about like neural synchronization and stuff. I was wondering if we'll see a thing where it's not just that he's learning how to control it, but maybe it's kind of synchronizing with his brain and we're going to see Shinji become kind of like more alien or something like that as, as this is going on. Yeah, that's really cool. And like, there is that uh, shot in, I think it's a recurring shot, but it's also in the opening of the Ava with its like six light wings extending from behind its back. And then the, uh, the image of Shinji kind of superimposes on top of it until they're almost mm. uh, in the same uh, like size and pose. Uh, so yeah, you're right. It, that's, that's really cool. That probably will see that. So he saves Suzuhara and Ida and defeats the angel in a super climactic and suspenseful coming down to the, uh, last second of energy usage. And then the two of the, the angel and the Ava are just suspended there lifeless against this, uh, sunset backdrop. And it's just this beautiful still. Um, and it is kind of funny, though, because that means that for hours and hours until they can 
get a team out there to recover this entry plug, Suzuhara, Haida, and Shinji are just stuck together <laughs> in a pitch black cockpit. I hadn't thought about that part of it, but yeah, that that is a really cool shot. And like, uh, there's this kind of classic anime cicada noise, you know, that that you always hear. This kind of trill that slows down and fades out, kind of perfectly with the fading out of the visual. And it's just, yeah, that's the sort of shot that you might expect from like a slice of life anime, but not a mecha anime. And I think is kind of a good example of, you know, this show is really trying to do its best at all of these kind of different genres and mashing them all together. Yeah, they really have, they're learning from all, uh, uh, well, not all, but they're learning from multiple traditions that have come before, right? Yeah, right. Or like, that's something that you could imagine. Maybe that's like coming more from the like Miyazaki influence that Anno has versus the um, uh, Macross influence. And maybe this is just, I haven't seen that much Macross, so maybe Macross does shots like that too, but... Uh, not as much and not like that, but, and, and now that you mention it, they have those, I think are awesome. Those slow pan shots over the, uh, city, uh, which are just a still, right? Uh, those are very Miyazaki, very spirited away. Um, you could imagine that being the end of the episode, but then there's this one more sequence of Ida giving Suzuhara Shinji's number and being like, Hey dude, I know that you like feel bad about what you did before, but we see that Suzuhara doesn't end up calling Shinji, um, which maybe kind of goes back to that hedgehog's dilemma that they introduced at the beginning of, of you know, Shinji not really having any friends. And, and, you know, the idea is that hedgehogs, you know, want to be close to other hedgehogs, but their, their spines, they're, they're prickly. It makes it hard for them to get close to one another without hurting one another. Right. Hard to gauge that safe distance um like safe but comfortable distance right uh it, and it, it's funny because in being estranged or alienated from shinji we see that suzuhara is kind of like shinji he's you know he's the same age he's dealing with these uh uh social problems in in much the similar way like he has a friend in ida but maybe he doesn't get close to other people yeah and, and maybe it's not all it's not just Shinji, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe Suzuhara is afraid of him or... And, and I could imagine that being the answer is like, after you see him like go berserk in the thing and then just like start crying, you're like, holy shit. <laughs> oh, this guy's got some issues and I, I'm not equipped to help him. Yeah. yeah. Maybe Suzuhara is going to get his uh, uh, psychology degree and then he will start helping Shinji. Wait, is that a metaphor you're familiar with, this hedgehog's dilemma? Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> this is the first time I've heard of it. There, there's a song I really like, 8-Bit Something. Anyway, I'll look it up and try to stick it in the episode. But, but there's this reference to Hedgehog's Dilemma. But then I think it, was, it wasn't until re-watching this now that I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's what the Hedgehog's Dilemma is. And hedgehogs are the same as porcupines, right? At least roughly, yeah. I don't know if it's like a guinea pig hamster kind of distinction or something. If they're not the same thing, they both have quills, right? Spines? Yeah, let me see. I'm Googling it right now. Hedgehogs and porcupines aren't actually related. Um, There are 17 species of hedgehogs. Their closest relations are shrews and moles. There are more than two dozen species of porcupines, and they're part of the rodent family. Shocker. (laughs) I can't believe it. That's your episode ender right there. The the (laughs) bombshell that porcupines and hedgehogs are not related. So, so I think uh, before we started recording, you had mentioned you were like, one of the things you were doing was some research on Kabbalah shit. 
Oh yeah, um, I did some initial stuff. So there's, it's pretty interesting. The uh, preferred pronunciation is Kabbalah. Um, very, very Hebrew. Uh, so there are three different ways to spell it, which are with a K, with a C or with a Q. So with a K, it's kosher. Uh, I mean, that's that's not actually, it doesn't stand for that anything, but that's an easy way to remember that if it's spelled with a K, it means it's Jewish or uh, Hebrew Kabbalah. Hmm. Um, if it's spelled with a C, it's actually a Christian tradition of Kabbalah. Huh. And if it's spelled with a Q, it's a Hermetic or a, a Western tradition of Kabbalah. They all come from the same place, the same root uh, text and the same root um, design, which is that tree of life, right? Uh, but they have, I guess, interpreted it in different ways and taken it to mean different things. Uh, there's a Western thing called, I think it started in Britain, called the Order of the Golden Dawn. And that is a, uh, a tradition of uh, Hermetic Kabbalah. It actually extends all the way up to modern day Wicca and things. Like they have similar roots, almost like a, uh, not a genetic, I guess it would be a mimetic legacy all the way back to uh, the, this original Jewish mysticism, which is just fascinating. Yeah, it's funny, that that's so the keyword, I guess I always think of it spelled with a K, and then it's like Kabbalah, it's like Jewish Jewish mysticism. And then I think my other association is that I heard that like Barbara Streisand got really into it at some point. <laughs> or maybe it's Madonna, maybe it's Madonna. Madonna's super into it. Okay. Um, I, I have to research how into it Madonna is. Uh, but Barbara Streisand's Jewish, it would make sense. And it would make sense that we would have heard of it within her lifetime, because if she's studying Jewish Kabbalah, uh, traditionally, you don't start studying it until you're 40 years old huh. or older. Um, yeah, it has all these bizarre, interesting, esoteric traditions, and that's like, uh, uh, I don't know, a maturity of the mind. Um, you also have to know, if, if you're going to do the, the Jewish one, uh, you have to have learned, obviously, the um, Hebrew alphabet, which is also numeric. So like, Aleph, the first uh, letter, is one, they're the same. Right and uh, Bayet, I think, is the second. Is two the same? And there's 22 letters. It's like Roman numerals. Like after one through ten, they extend to like 20, and then 50, and then a thousand, and then and all the way up to, through the 22 letters. Um, and one of the core tenets is that alphabet is capable of describing the entire universe, which is bizarre, but uh, it's very interesting stuff. I'm getting into it. Oh, and a, a cool little tidbit that I need to look more into and might become more uh, prevalent as we go on. The most famous uh, ritual for Kabbalah is the creation of golems, hmm. which the Avas, in essence, are a golem uh, because they are this semi-organic thing that has life or, or mobility or maybe even consciousness imbued into in this esoteric, not completely scientific, maybe not completely understood fashion. Yeah, my, my only knowledge of golems really like it's something about like defending Jewish homes or something like that. Like there's this like folklore of them being these like defenders. And it's like, it almost sounds like it was like something that you made up where it's like, don't try to come steal from Jewish people while we're gone. Cause we got these golems that are gonna like fuck you up. Just warning you. <laughs> and isn't it the same here though? Because like Tokyo three is this ancestral home for the Japanese people. So the Avas are serving that same purpose. Um, and yeah, there is that, you know, it may be this old wives tale thing. Um, but there's supposedly a golem preceding World War II in Spain. Like, it's it's wild. Hmm. I don't know if we want to go more into Kabbalah. I can kind of start maybe rationing it out. Yeah, if there's anything you want to add, if there's any um, cliffhanger you can think of. I don't know. Uh, oh, I think I think we got our cliffhanger. I think the cliffhanger is that porcupine scent. <laughs> oh, no, a cliffhanger. Okay, no, that's like, I think that's our ending. That's our resolution. It's amazing. Um, cliffhanger. 
talk about the foundational text of Kabbalah, the Zohar. Sounds like maybe there's like, there's too much to get into right now. Correct. (laughs) But is it going to blow my mind? Yes, it will blow your mind. You have to tune in. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm new at this. I don't know. I'm just, I'm fucking around too.